Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we're sitting down with Tyler of Big Bluff Ranch to chat about animal agriculture and more specifically chicken production. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Always. This is always a pleasure to get in front of food producers, folks in the industry, people in the field. I love this stuff. You guys know I get jazzed about it because the more we learn, the more we can pass on information. So um, I'd love to just dive in. Let's get a brief um, breakdown of who Tyler is. Where did you grow up? Um, where are you from? Where are you living today? And, you know, how was food handled in your household um, as a young child? And then lead us into your journey into animal agriculture. <laughs> Well, okay, let's let's jump right in. Who the heck am I? So, <clears throat> kind of a a fun fact is I've only lived at two addresses my entire life. There was this one where I'm at right now and the brief interlude of college. So, mm. so there's not a whole lot of evolution to me as far as like <laughs> living in the city and moving to the ranch or anything like that. Now, I was I was born here. I was um Grew up here. So the ranch, we're in Red Bluff, California, which is about two hours north of Sacramento, four-ish hours north of the Bay Area. We're in the Sacramento Valley. And um, we've been here since 1960. Grandpa bought the ranch back in 1960. My parents moved up here permanently in the late 70s. And... In the early 80s, there was all sorts of weird stuff happening in the agricultural finance world. And Grandpa um, kind of had to have the ranch pay for itself. At the time, when he bought it, it was a, a weekend getaway. You know, he, mm. at, the, at the moment, he had, had the money to make that happen, but it didn't last very long. And so my parents had to... Um, figure out how to ha- how the ranch is going to make a full time living. Um, so th- this is always kind of a weird thing to say. It always blows people's minds. But the ranch is four thousand acres, and wow. I realize that's a lot of acres to a lot of people. But in our neck of the woods, if you're trying to make a living as a cow calf operation, you need eight to ten thousand. It, it all it depends on the fertility of the soil. You know, so our 4,000 acres, we can run about, oh, 100 pair year round, which is not very many. Um, But if we were to be down in the valley, you know, 20 miles from us, um, where it's really fertile soil, some of the best soil in the world, you know, we could run that 100 pair on 80 acres, 100 acres. So it all... It all kind of depends on the environment mm. that your ranch is in, how big it needs to be to support a family. Um, so anyways, my joke is that <laughs> the ranch is a full-time job but a half-time income, um, which is uh, unfortunately mm. not all that far from the truth and is not, not all that far from the truth for most ranching and agricultural families. Um so anyways, back to the early 80s, my dad was trying to figure out how to make money out here, and he ran across a guy named Alan Savory. Alan Savory is now, depending on the mm-hmm. circles you travel in, a minor celebrity, and he was um, 
a Rhodesian biologist back in the day. And he loved going out in the bush and seeing all the wildlife. And, and he was really sad when he would come on to um, conventional ranches or whatever they'd call it in Rhodesia. And there was just no vitality there. And so he started melding all of these different philosophies of um, land management and financial management and people management and put it all together in this thing called holistic resource management, which is a, uh, a management philosophy that kind of accounts for the people, the land and the animals and how to balance them. So, you know, you don't profit at the expense of your environment. You don't profit at the expense of people like it all. It's a triple bottom line, which is something people talk about these days. Um, so the, the simplest element of holistic management, which is just the most simplest element, is the idea that when Alan was walking around in Africa, he would see, and I'm totally going to get the animals wrong, but you'll understand what I'm saying. He would see gigantic herds of wildebeest, and they'd be mm-hmm. here for a day, and they'd eat, eat and trample and dung and manure this one spot, and there'd be no food left, and then the lions also would be around. And they're like, well, there's no food. There's a bunch of lions. Let's move on to the next spot. And so that whole herd would go off, and that would leave those plants uh, time to recover, that they would grow back. And so that is, at the absolute most simplistic way of explaining it, one of his land management philosophies. So my dad went to a talk with him. It was like one of 20 people in a town that's smaller than Red Bluff. And my dad was like, yeah, this makes sense. Let's let's start doing this. Your dad goes to this meeting. It sounds like there were like 20 people at this meeting and Alan Savory's talking, which is insane to me. So we actually just did an interview with Kelowna Supernatural. They're really excited because they are getting the, shoot, what's the uh, verification? The land. DOV. Land to market. Yeah. Land to market verification verification from the Savory Institute. And so it's so cool how like Alan Savory really does. He's just impacted so much of agriculture in the best way. Um, So your dad gets to go in this little meeting and Alan Savory's talking and and he learns from him some of his land management philosophies. And then he goes and applies that back to your ranch, I'm assuming. So lead us into this journey. Right. That's exactly exactly it. So we started building um, a lot of electric fence. So that's what modern agriculture can, or animal agriculture can use instead of wolves. Uh, we use electric fence or fencing, but generally speaking, it's going to be electric fence. And so mm-hmm. when my dad started, the ranch had maybe three pastures. And by the time uh, the end of the 80s came around, we were up to probably 10 or 12 pastures. And so the idea being that you could, you know, control your animals grazing. So traditionally, cowboys are going to do what they call set stocking, which is where they just turn out 100 head on 100 acres, 1,000 acres, and they're, they're done. They just wander around for the season, and they gather them up and take them to the next spot. And so if you look at it that way, n- technically, no part of the pasture has any recovery ability that an animal can walk to any acre at any time and so if you go back to my uh african example that those when the wildebeest or zebra whichever my example was leave 
that they, that plant now has a chance to recover and it want plants want to recover to the point where it looks like they're never grazed before they get grazed again. Mm-hmm. So if you do a set stocking and there's no thing keeping an animal from going back, those first few inches of plant regrowth are just amazingly nutritious and yummy and delicious to cows because it's going to have fresh young leaves. It's pulling up energy from its roots and trying to regrow its solar panels. And so that stuff is just delicious. And so if a a ruminant has an option, it's going to go for that. I mean, it's just like, um, you know, if your parents aren't around, you're probably going to eat, you know, your dessert first type idea. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just want the good stuff. Um, So by building fences, instead of having that 100 acres be continually open to grazing, you subdivide that down so the cows can't go back and hit that regraze or regraze that plant. And so it just allows those plants to regrow. And um, it's important for plants to regrow that that (laughs) this is, I don't know, Luckily, it's a long podcast, right? So one of the cool (laughs) things about agriculture is, or animal agriculture, or agriculture in general, is that the only energy, free energy that we get into our our world is sunlight coming from the sun, right? That's the only energy we get. And the only way we can take that energy and convert it to something that we can use is through chlorophyll. So you got plankton in the oceans, and I'm not an oceanographer, so I can't talk about that. But um, on Earth, on Terra, you're going to have that sunlight hit green leaves, right? And the conversion of sunlight into chlorophyll and all the chemical magic happens, and we have taken sunlight, which is nothing, and turned it into something that we can utilize either directly through veggies and fruit or we can utilize it through meat Mm -hmm. and so ultimately our job as a land steward is to grow as many green leaves for as long as possible to convert as much sunlight as possible into some form of life and that is why circling back to fences why it's important to have a fence that by managing our animals such that we are paying attention to our plants we are growing as many solar panels as possible for as long as possible to capture as much solar energy and convert it to good as Mm. possible um so that totally makes sense and the first thing that comes to my mind is since we are domesticating animals, we're kind of taking them out of their normal environment in a way that we're prote- we're providing them extra safety. We're hopefully guarding them from predators. They won't like if you go back to your example of the cows grazing on a thousand acres and they just have free range. They don't have that migrational pattern because they're not having to move in herds because they're not having pressure from predators. So that's totally outside of probably that animal's natural biological experience because we've domesticated it for the purpose of raising food. But time and time again, we see that the more we just mirror what nature originally did, then it actually has impacts 
beyond just raising good meat, you're saying that you were also allowing these plants to grow to their full potential before we're chopping them off of the knees again. And then that's creating other um, places for wildlife to thrive. And we haven't even talked about, you know, the tiny little microscopic beings in the soil that are also having to thrive. So to me, it's just continually asking yourself, how would this have existed if humans didn't interfere in the process? And then how can we strategically with nature um, work together to mirror that and then produce really biologically appropriate food for humans? So that's like while we're using technology and electric fences and all of those beautiful modern day conveniences, we're doing it in an effort to mirror what would have happened naturally. And, you know, so much of modern day animal agriculture in particular is the opposite, right? We're, we're taking animals indoors, we're shoving them in confinement, we're feeding them non-biologically appropriate food. And then the consumer doesn't see any of that. There's no chance anyone walking in the grocery store get, has a clear picture of how their chicken, their beef, or their pork was raised unless they've done the homework to, to figure out where did this come from and what are the tr- uh, common practices and what, what might this have looked like before it got to my grocery store shelves. There's just no, there's just no way that they're connecting those dots. So thank you for painting that picture because... Um, I love it. This stuff like gets me so excited. Like it's a little bit nerdy, but it's exciting for me. So you guys um, operated with beef and I know you've done quite a few different animals. So lead us through kind of your evolution of animal agriculture and how you've led to chicken today. (laughs) Why the heck are you raising chickens? It's a very good question. Um, yeah, so that whole side story, that only got us up to the end of the 80s. So I'll, I'll go faster yeah. to catch us up to the present. But so the 90s uh, led us into um, our cattle genetics, that the idea is that, you know, if you are taking care of the land, that the animals should be able to survive fully off the land that they're raised on. You know, your, our wild deer around here, the blacktail, they don't have someone dumping out a bale of hay for them in the winter, right? That they were evolved to fit this environment. So the same idea kind of applied to our cattle. It was like, well, wait a second. Why are we feeding hay to these cows? Let's let's figure this out. And so that led us to changing the genetics. So um, conventional genetics are in super rough terms, tall, skinny cows that are actually hard to fatten. And their genetics are really good to take corn and turn cheap-ass corn into valuable meat. Um, That's a whole side rabbit there. That's not, as you're (laughs) saying, not biologically appropriate for a cow. Um, So what we wanted is a short, wide cow, which is a cow that does really well on grass. And we got going pretty well through that through the 80s. And 2000, when I graduated college, is right when the grass-fed beef industry really started booming. Uh, um, Michael Pollan, I feel like such an old-timer. I've been saying this a couple times, and people just look at me with glazed eyes. Michael Pollan wrote an article in The Atlantic, or The New Yorker, called Power Steer. And this article just made the grass-fed beef industry happen. His one article was like, boom, it went from nothing to something overnight. Yeah, there was Mm. definitely people doing it before and talking about it, but Michael Pollan popularized it. And he's gone on to write all these these other amazing books. 
Um, but no one really circles back to that article as like the beginning of the grass fed beef world. And it came out in 99, maybe 98, something like that. Anyways, it's pretty fun to go back to. Um, so we were at farmer's markets with grass fed beef right at the very beginning of the grass fed beef era. Um, and this, no one even knew what it was at the time. Like you couldn't go Whole Foods, I don't even know if Whole Foods existed, but if it did, like you couldn't go to Whole Foods and get grass-fed beef. It just wasn't a thing that could be bought, um, which is just kind of bonkers to me now because I still have this feeling when I go into a high-end grocery store, I'm like, wow, grass-fed beef in a grocery store? This is so cool, <laughs> you know, and people, because I still remember how how hard the industry wanted to get to that level, that it was a big deal because it was all mom and pops. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, international, we're getting Australia grass-fed beef coming in. Whether or not that's good, that's a whole different story. But it's interesting that the consumer demand has grown to the point where grocery stores need to have it if they want to have the cachet of being high-end. Um so anyways, grass-fed beef, and then we also, because our actual ranch is very brushy and very hilly, we're either flat or, or vertical, which is um, really good for goats and sheep. So we tried goats and sheep, um, which are great animals for our environment, and they're very tasty, but not uh, enough people knew how tasty they were, so it never really worked out for us. Um, and then we tried like 30 head of chickens and we're like, well, I'll just try it. And the chickens did great. We didn't particularly enjoy it. (laughs) We didn't know what we were doing. We actually ended up processing them on farm, bringing into the house, ducking them, dunking them into a pot of boiling water, scalding water to pluck them by hand. And there's just something about the smell of wet chicken feathers in your kitchen (laughs) that makes your mom say, no, no, we're not doing that ever again. Um, so, so we're like, okay, new rule. We're only going to do things with four legs. And at that point, the only thing left was pork. So we got into pastured pork and, um, that turned out to be way worse than pasture poultry for us because <laughs> we had a, a lot of wild pigs at the time. And so trying to keep a, a wild boar away from a domestic sow and heat just doesn't happen. So yeah. we had crazy crossbreeds we had uh, it was just it was not it was not our animal to raise and so we kind of got out of the pigs and kind of looked at the world again and we're like okay what do we need to do um this was probably about 2008 or 9 lots more people had entered the grass head farmers market world that we were in um uh no one was no one was still eating lamb or goat and we're like well the only thing left the most popular protein that no one is taking to a farmer's market is chicken. So fooey, we'll try it again. <laughs> we're too dumb to not do it, right? Too dumb. We're dumb enough to we're dumb enough to do it again. Um, so that that was it. We just got back into chicken. We were doing on farm processing, uh, selling at farmers markets, friends and family type idea. We got up to about 1,800 head a year, and we were at a processing crossroads, which is um, to remain under USDA exemption, you couldn't technically hire labor. And we we had burnt through all of our friends and family. We're like, okay, we got a processing date. Who's coming? Dead silence. 
Like, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll be there for sure, no problem. And oh, the day before, <laughs> nope, sorry, something came up. Um, so we had to make a decision of where we were gonna go. And I ran into a conference, or I went to a conference, and I ran into a guy who could um, sell more birds than he could raise, and we could raise more birds than we could sell. And so that was when we shifted from all direct marketing to um, incorporating a lot of what I call contract growing. We would raise these birds for a different company, and they would put their label on it and sell it in the Bay Area. Cool. And that's kind of counter to a lot of like the, what the direct market people talked about, but it was great for us. It really allowed us to focus purely on processing, or I mean not processing, production, because we can grow up to, I don't know, about 70,000 chickens a year, which puts us on the larger scale of pasture poultry producers and that there is, um, there's not a lot of them doing it at that scale. And there's not there. Now there is much more access to knowledge on how to get to the scale. But when I started off, there's, you know, the, the main book is Joel Salatin wrote a book called pasture poultry profits and that that was the book, you know. There's mm-hmm. a couple other ones, but that was that was the book. And you know, in that book, he's only talking about doing, I don't know, ten thousand a year seasonally. So going from ten thousand years of uh, birds a year seasonally to seventy thousand birds a year on a year-round basis, there's a lot of things that you have to figure out for yourself. And so by being a contract grower we were able to concentrate just on production and figuring that out that the marketing is a whole nother ball game. It's a whole nother job. And had we tried to get to that scale of production while marketing at the same time, I don't think we would have made it. Mm-hmm. So uh, were you still producing or, or sorry, not producing, were you still processing your own birds or once they were who, like who was doing the processing at right. this point? So processing in the whole direct meat world, Processing is a huge bottleneck that not many people know about. That, uh, in general terms, there are a lot of consumers who are willing to buy locally produced meat. And there are a lot of producers who are willing to produce locally produced meat. But to get the animal that the producer grew to the consumer, it has to generally speaking, go through the USDA process, which means it has to go to a USDA slaughterhouse. And through, and there's just not very many of them. So in, for us in California, I'm a pasture poultry guy. There are two processing plants for custom chickens in California. The entire state of California, there's only two plants that bring in small-scale custom chickens. Hmm. And that's not unusual through the entire states. So California, you know, we have the reputation of being, you know, high-end food snobbies. At least I think we do. And so (laughs) that this entire state of California and where all the food snobby people live, there are only two plants who can process chickens. And it's really only one who likes to do it. And that plant's capacity is about, I don't know, 100, well, I don't know. I never thought of that. But let's just, it's, it's going to be like, say, about 150,000 birds, uh, something like that. 
I wouldn't want to speak for them. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. But the, 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 the point here is that there is a very limited amount of processing capacity to actually feed California. So you think that California is like, oh, this huge market, there's going to be thousands of people, and there probably are, but there's only one plant. You can only process 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. I don't know what the actual number is, but it's way less than there's actual demand out there. And that's not just for chickens. That's also true for beef, for pork, for lamb. Uh, The four-legged animals have slightly better options, but even still, the processing capacity is extremely limited. And that's been brought about through some economic realities and some legislative realities where back in the Oh, when was it? Probably the 70s. Some legislation happened and it started shutting down a lot of these mom and pop USDA plants. And Mm. it's just continued ever since. And that. Well, anyways, does that make any sense? It makes sense in my head. Have I like left any questions in your head at the moment? No, it totally makes sense. So what what we've got going on is a bottleneck of, of processing. So production growth producing birds or organic animals for consumption is doing very well and it is not able to meet demand of you know, the consumer because it hits this processing bottleneck wherein they cannot process all the animals that are being produced because there's not enough processors. I guess my question is, and you, you, I think you probably answered this a little bit with the legislation and and maybe maybe there's some profitability challenges to these sorts of operations as well. But why aren't more people starting up processing plants? Uh, it's a hard it's a hard business. It's a it's um it's a lot of capital. You have to buy the land. You have to buy the equipment. Uh, it's a lot of regulation. Um, uh, NIMBY. Do you know this acronym? NIMBY. Not in my backyard. Mm-mm. Everyone, everyone thinks a processing plant is great as long as it's in your town. Not my town, your town. So mm. at, at least in California, it may be different elsewhere. But around here, it is really tough to actually find uh, zoning where you can actually build a processing plant. Mm. And then you have to pay for the plant, the equipment. And that's all time and money, which is hard enough. But the real problem is uh, labor, that process you know, butchering is a relatively skilled hand labor job. They've gotten made huge advances in, you know, machines to aid, but ultimately it comes down to a guy with a knife who knows how to use that knife. And that when you are a small plant, it is tough to have a steady supply of product of animals moving through your plant. Especially when you're talking to small producers like grass-fed beef producers, at least here in California, generally speaking, they're going to finish in the late spring, early summer, and you're going to have very little in the fall and the winter. So how do you staff that? You have to staff, you know, it, it's a labor issue. Um, so you, you need to figure out how you're going to have steady product moving through your plant all the time. And, you know, generally what the only way to do that is to staff for your slowest period, which means that you're going to miss this huge bump in the spring, at least around here. Um, And the other issue that they have is that the gigantic plants are so gigantic 
that they're they have so much product to spread their overhead across. You know, they can just mm-hmm. they're just so much more cheap. I mean, they're I'm not going to try to argue about whether or not they're doing a good job or a bad job, but if you just imagine a plant who can process a million chickens a year is going to have a much better economic situation than a plant that can only process 100,000 birds a year, right? Mm-hmm. It just that's just how the numbers lay out. Um, so there is a very strong economic incentive for processing plants to be big. And once a processing plant gets big, it can't bring in small producers that the cost of like, just, you know, if I give you, okay, so say you guys raise a hundred chickens, I'm going to raise a hundred thousand just because why not? So mm-hmm. you talk to my plant. I talk to my plant. You give them your cutting instructions for a hundred head. I give them my cutting instructions for 100,000 head. It's the same amount of work for them to talk to their line to get the cutting pack, cutting instructions all lined out, the packaging all lined out. But when they do my birds, that's probably going to be, you know, 300,000 pounds of chicken. They do your birds, that's 300 pounds of chicken, right? It's just cheaper for them to work with bigger operations. Yeah. Um, so, but... <sighs> <laughs> There's just so much interesting stuff about this. So processing. So I, I mentioned earlier that we processed up to 1,800 head on farm. So yeah. for poultry, USDA allows for, they call it USDA exemption. So under 20,000 birds per year, the USDA kicks that down to the state for inspection. So every single state, if you produce less than 20,000 birds a year, um, you can go under state inspection different states states have different levels of inspection so for us that was um that was how we started off we were processing on farm under usda exemption it's like pl40942 something like that that would be good enough for google to find up the right regulations for you um but there are some restrictions in there like i mean clearly you have to do a good clean safe job right you don't want to send out bad product um, but then there are, like, we, like I said, we couldn't hire people to run our processing plant. As soon as you hire labor, you have to be USDA exempt. And then how do you process 20,000 birds a year with just friends and family? Mm-hmm. It, it, it don't. So the game is really rigged for you to go to USDA inspection. And so also for us personally, as soon as we went into our contract, we had to be USDA because our buyer was selling to restaurants and grocery stores and food services. You know, I think for a very short time, our chicken was, was served at the Google um, cafeterias. I don't know. Mm. It was not really my job. I don't know, but I know he was going after <laughs> those sort of food service accounts. Um, and so we had to go USDA for that fact. Um, so, yeah, the processing is a huge bottleneck that no one knows about. And there's really not a great way of solving it. Like the current farm bill dropped $20 billion into what they call this niche meat processing. I can't remember exactly the name of the bill, but $20 billion. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. That's going to change everything. And I was listening to a podcast and a guy went through the math and he was like, well, that can open up 
because he went through the math I just went for you. It was like, well, you could do 100 head lots or you can do 100,000 head lots. Well, we want to do 100,000 head lots. It, it's where the economic reality is. And so he laid out, he's like, well, this $20 billion is going to open up, I can't remember what he said, 10 to 20 new processing plants. And those 10 to, new, 10 to 20 new processing plants are going to be so big that little guys like me can't get in and that those new processing plants are only going to add 10% capacity to what's already out there in the States wow. overall. $20 billion sounds like a big, big chunk of money, but actually it was a drop in the bucket when he laid it out. Mm-hmm. It was just like, whoa, crazy. So, so, um, so what is the solution here? Because in my head, I'm thinking like if every small chicken producer, like say every town had a chicken producer um, and in the community was aware of it and there was education behind, hey, we it's almost like community supported agriculture, like a CSA, but like also like come help butcher the chickens voluntarily. I, like, is that possible? Is it possible to get like smaller networks of people involved? So it's not just the ranchers, friends and family. Um, like, if I'm correct, I believe Will Harris at White Oak Pastures got to the point where he was able to build a USDA inspected meat processing plant. But like, that's because he was able to scale his production. That's I don't know if, I mean, if it was possible for him, is that scalable? Is his model, can we take his model? Or, like, for me, I'm yeah, just like, there's got to be something. So, there's got to be something. I, I don't particularly have the answer. I wish I did. If I did, I'd probably be, you know, hopefully really? I'd be rich if I had the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I But my sense is where this all needs to end up is we need to create a spectrum of producers. So you need your small mom and pop local farmers markets, very local, you know, community oriented, which is great. That's kind of where we started. I fully believe that. But ultimately, if you're in that world, that doesn't really, generally speaking, turn into a business, right? You're not Mm -hmm. moving enough volume. You're not really getting anywhere you need to be. Then there's people like us, and though you know we're talking, we have a four thousand acre ranch, and you know we can do fifty thousand birds a year. Like that sounds like really big numbers. We're still just barely big enough to be considered small. Like we're not very big at all. We need a lot more producers like us that can support. You know, I think we can do about a thousand families when we get up and going with our chicken and other stuff. Maybe we'll talk about later in the podcast how we're trying to get back into goats and sheep. Maybe we can support about a thousand families. And then I know you guys talked to Paul Grieve a couple couple months back about pasture bird. That's really exciting too, what he's doing, because that's adding another layer of production where he is big, he is legit, he's a good guy, doing a big thing that actually kind of gets out to, you know, a regional slash national market. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's another way of describing it. We need local, which is farmers markets call me regional, maybe. And then, then you would need nationwide like Paul. And so when you get up to Paul's scale, like he can almost plug into like the existing processing infrastructure. Right. When you're small, when you're local, you can process under exemption. I'm sure you have people local to you who are producing chicken like this. I'm sure yeah. they're all over the nation. Yeah. We've got we've got some neighbors and friends who do it. You know, they're they're always around. 
So really, it, it's people like us who are kind of stuck in the middle where we're too big that we can't process under exemption and we're way too small to get into these big plants. So it's how do you solve solve for us? And that is literally the million dollar question. I don't I don't know. I mean, we are just kind of like locking, you know, things together and trying to make it work. But ultimately it comes down to consumer demand that, and this is, you know, know, for people who are listening, you know, that one of the things I like to say is that, you know, and I steal this from someone, but you're voting three times a day with your food dollars. What food system do you want to support? And that you think that you go to the grocery store and you buy a chicken that it is a meaningless purchase. There's like whatever I just bought chicken, it's Tyson, it's Purdue. I can't I can't change that. Well, but that's really not true at all. That I mean, Pasture Bird was bought out by he, Paul did talk about that, Ra, how, how Paul was... It was Pasher Purdue, Bird. yeah. Yeah, it was bought out by Purdue. And yeah. I, what I would want to say about that is that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm worried about greenwashing and this and that. And I know Paul, like, he's he's doing the right thing. And I see where the people's uh, concerns come from. But what I would like to point out is that Purdue, third, fifth largest per- chicken producer in the United States is seeing that pasture-raised chicken is where a good chunk of the um, demand is going to be in the future. And they are racing to get ahead of that demand, right? And the only reason that they see that demand is that people are actually buying pasture poultry. They're doing it. It's Mm -hmm. happening. And so that random chicken you bought at the farmer market from some random farmer market person was very meaningful to that producer and is, in fact, creating a whole industry. And I could actually relate it back to grass-fed beef in the early 2000s where it was a small thing, you know, buying from local neighbors. But, you know, some people started growing it bigger. And now it is an actual industry. It's reported by the USDA AMS reports and that you're bringing in stuff from Australia and Argentina, whether or not that's good or not. But what I'm saying is that it all went back to a few committed people spending their dollars where they believed it should go, and they created grass-fed beef. It did not exist 20, 20, 25 years ago. There was no such thing as a grass-fed beef industry, and it only happened because people wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And so, I can't remember why I got on that soapbox, but your dollars matter. The food you buy matters, and it directly impacts me and keeps me in business. I had a question. It was it's a, it's around the processing, and, and we can get off this because I'm sure we've been talking about processing so much that people are like, "Yo, blood's <laughs> everywhere." But anyways, the the uh, the processing plant that currently is able to or is pr- uh, processing your birds, right? So right now, are you wholesaling, if you will, and someone else is is lumping them into a bigger like a bigger batch? or a bigger pool of, of chickens and then and then sending them off to a more conventional processor or are there different processors like hey if I'm a free range if I, if we're a pasture raised organic is that a different processing plant than like a Tyson chicken plant or what what am I, what are we what are we working with here right so the processing plant i go to is a is a small plant um, they do custom stuff you know if we want it so in our neck of the woods it would be a foster farms 
if mm. Foster Farms would never let us in the door for a whole bunch of reasons, but just logistically speaking, my yearly production of 50,000 birds, they process probably in two days mm. or less, maybe even a day, right? That the scale is so, so vastly different that, you know, if I was joking saying you had 100 birds, I had 100,000 birds, well, spin that around. If I'm trying to talk to Foster Farms, I would be the guy with a hundred head and they would have a hundred thousand. They would be like, I, I, yeah, I'm not even going to, there's no conversation to be had. We don't, we don't interact. So when we process our birds, it's a direct contract. Um, we're not, we are now more wholesalers, which means that our chickens are being sold with our labels on it by other companies. So all of our chickens, if you see a Big Bluff Ranch chicken out there, it's we raised it. That's that's us. It's not aggregated with anyone else. Um, and then back when we were contract growing, the possibility was out there to aggregate producers. But we're basically the one or two biggest producers in California. There was really no one else to aggregate our production with. So mm. if at the time, if you saw any of their birds, it would have come from us as well. Um, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, so processors they process anyone's chickens. There's no, there's no like this is an organic processor. This is a not. There's no class system separating processors from another. No, no, not really. Basically, if you want, and you know, if you are out there and you're trying to get um, doing some direct marketing of your meat that you want to grow to consumers, the absolute first thing you should do is don't talk to consumers start calling processors and you're going to have to be tricky. They don't really need to advertise. And then you're just going to have to ask them if they do custom processing. Some of them will, mm -hmm. some of them won't. Some of them only do it if you're at a certain scale. Some of them only do it certain times of year, but until you figure out the processing bottleneck, you don't really have a business. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. It's a real challenge. And, and that's why I'm glad we spent a little bit of time chatting about it because there are these different segments of agriculture, like from a consumer perspective. And it's, we actually talked about it with, in our recent dairy episode, but it's like, I always assume either you are this massive, um, like industrial farm organization and you sell, um, you sell through like big box retailers, right? Or you're this like small mom and pop and you sell through the um, local farmer's market. And there is this in-between. It almost feels like everyone we talk to who's sitting in that in-between, it's like the system's not really built to support you. Either you're huge or you're kind of small. And so it's good to just paint the picture of what that in-between looks like because you're still providing valuable food for tons of families but mm -hmm. it's like we need to work on the infrastructure part to support you guys and like you said we don't necessarily have the answers and I also appreciate what you said about Paul because we we talked about the acquisition with Purdue because it was kind of a controversial topic and he is an open book and super like legit really respect the hell out of him and he was we kind of landed on the same conclusion. Like, listen, Purdue's not going to go into this deal and then completely change how you're operating your chicken. They're doing this because they see the market potential and they want to stay ahead of it and they want to actually push this forward. And so thank you, Paul, for providing a system that raises pasture-raised birds and can be plugged into this large-scale mass-produced agriculture. Um, like, that is a solution to 
some of the other ways that we have produced chicken at large scale, and that's not necessarily good for the environment or ourselves. Yeah, Purdue did not need Pasture Bird to be able to create more chickens the way they've already been doing it. Right, right? they wanted something different. They were buy, right. You, you wouldn't go buy Pasture Bird so that you could do more of what you're already doing. That would be ridiculous. They wanted to It'd invest into something that's new and. And they're trying to create a new category. Totally what you said, Tyler. So right on. So I have a question. As we chatted on the phone months ago, you in passing made this comment of, well, chickens should actually cost more than beef. And I don't know if you were referencing like pound per pound or what, but break down like some of the actual logistics that go into pricing birds and what that should look like if we are raising chickens in a biologically appropriate way. Oh boy, another soapbox. So, uh, the um, yeah, chicken. Chicken is not as cheap as people expect it to be. Chicken is not the cheapest protein. You should not go into the grocery store and see a lot of beef and a lot of really cheap chicken and some other stuff on the side. That is not, as we said, as we talked, you know, the term we said earlier, biologically appropriate. That's just not how it works out so just right off the top of top of the top of the barrel um, top of the list is that the usda has gigantic corn and soy subsidies that our tax dollars go into the usda farm bill the farm bill turns around and provides producers of corn and soy with subsidies to make sure that they actually make money at, at soy because the usda wants the u.s to produce a surplus of stuff so we can you know feed the world and you know all sorts of depends on your level of conspiracy theory why they want you to do it but the reality is is that corn and soy is being produced way below the actual economic cost of what it costs to raise the the corn and soy and that's not accounting for the the kind of intangible costs like all of the fertilizer runoff all the the fact that there's no more bugs in the air that there's a gigantic dead zone in uh, the gulf of mexico you know the norlands it was shrimp i'm pretty sure they had a really famous shrimp uh, fishery and it's dead it's gone um so just kind of right there alone you can kind of get the sense that like hey if we were actually if chickens were actually eating corn and soy at the cost it should be at which i've never really seen because no one thinks like this i'm not an economic economic enough of an economicist that dude to calculate out what that cost should actually be but it's going to be way more than it actually is now the biggest expense in raising a chicken is the grain, the supplementation, by far. So let's just say that they can buy feed for $500 a ton right now, which is you know mostly corn and soy, that if you were to take the subsidies out, you're probably, I don't know, $1,000 a ton, $1,200 a ton. Um, when you get around to seeing that at the retail level, that's probably going to add... A buck fifty to two dollars a pound production cost. So that chicken you're seeing at the grocery store, which I don't actually buy a grocery store chicken anymore. I don't really know what it is. It's probably like what three, four bucks a pound, something like that, maybe. Mm-hmm. It probably should be a buck or two a pound at just a minimum more for just the cost of the grain. Um so 
Right there is one really quick concept of why chicken should cost more, right? Does that at all make sense? Was I semi, somewhat coherent totally about that? It totally makes sense. It totally makes sense, and it sounds like we are kind of actually still paying for it because if it's coming out of tax subsidies, right? We're yeah. I mean, we're the, we're yeah, the yeah, ones the paying those taxes. You're, you're so paying like for you've, it. You've pre-bought your chicken, so it's like when you walk in the grocery store and you see the price low, it's like, well, you've already spent some money on that. Chicken. You've already spent some money on that chicken. But right? it's frustrating to me because we've we've maybe paid for a portion of chicken that we didn't want raised that way, and I don't want to. I don't want to buy into the GMO yeah. crop production system. I don't want to pay for people's patents and the fact that the farmers have to buy new seed every year and the like astronomical amount of chemical inputs and the like blatant disregard for biology i don't want to pay for that in my tax Mm -hmm. dollars but unfortunately i don't have a say but that's frustrating because it puts this veil over consumers eyes because then we go to the grocery store and we're probably feeling financially stressed because all of our tax dollars are being taken and then we're like oh we have to afford this cheapest chicken but we're not but it's a sick cycle (laughs) it is it's annoying it's it's aggravating it, it is. is true. You walk in the grocery store, tax subsidies help you bring down the price of chicken. And and so many other products, too. It's not just chicken. Yeah. Right. Corn and soy are in everything. Every, there's corn oil. There's high fructose corn syrup. There's soy like additives in almost everything. Soy protein. Like we just, we, so, so this is a little bit new for me, Tyler. These subsidies, is that just for feed? Or is this for like that production, that crop in general? Are, are, are farmers receiving? Uh, I mean, I am not a grain farmer. I, I, I can give you the general logistics of it, but I don't. It's not my expertise. But I do know that the USDA Farm Bill, <clears throat> through various mechanisms, they have crop insurance, they have um, commodity price support, they have um, um, uh, weather related insurance. So they're not actually like paying farmers directly or not very often paying directly farmers to grow corn. What they do is they make sure in general farmers never lose money. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a backwards way of paying them that they have a a huge support net that, you know, I'm sure a grain farmer is going to disagree with me, but from my understanding that you have to be kind of um, doing things relatively poorly to actually lose money at the grain system. If you really get in there and you mess around with all of the various um, programs that the government has available to you, you should be able to lock in, at a worst case, a break-even production every year. And yet, like I've talked to a couple different grain producers who are like, even with the subsidies, like they're crap, like we're still having a really hard time making money. So it's hard. Like it's almost like any area you are in agriculture, um, there are obstacles that the consumer just never sees. And so it's like, yeah, we can place blame on those, but the, the blames aren't really on the grain farmer. The blame is on the broader system that we set up because we, again, ignored biology and started feeding animals things that mm. they weren't supposed to, or we confined them, or we grew crops because we thought that it would relate to higher yield. And then now we're realizing actually like GMO is not the future. So it's just, it's a, it's always starts small trickles down into other issues we didn't foresee and then that's just kind of how it is when you're trying to feed the world which makes sense any every industry is messy and agriculture is no different is grain the only and i'm again i'm just this is fascinating to me the only government assisted it's like if i'm growing potatoes and rice no not rice let's say i'm growing potatoes do i get 
any assistance at the end of the year, or am I just taking losses if, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm taking losses? So, so this is really kind of funny terminology. Uh, I don't know specifically about potatoes, um, but the USDA is helpful for just about everything. So California is a, you know, we're a huge agricultural state. We're, we're, we have very few surfers. We have way more farmers than we have surfers, no matter what <laughs> anyone thinks. But everything that California produces in agriculture is called a specialty crop. So the fact that California grows every single walnut in the United States, every single almond, most of the prunes, you know, we're a multi, multi-billion dollar agriculture community. All of the salad, pretty much every single salad you eat comes from in the Salinas Valley. Um, all of that stuff, even though it is like the nation's largest producer of all these crops, we are basically lumped under specialty crops, just as far as amusing terminology. So the only true commodity crops are, are in the Midwest, which is basically corn and soy. I think wheat may get some. Um, so if you are a farmer and you wish to avail yourself of these programs the government provides, you go in and talk to your local... Well, there's a whole bunch of different agencies, but you could talk to your farm service agency. You could talk to your NRCS, which is Natural Resource Conservation Service, um, and they can hook you up with whatever program is appropriate for your commodity. So uh, for our rangeland, for our cows, we can get drought insurance. So if we, if the federal government de- declares a drought in Northern California, we've paid in our insurance premium, we get... Uh, modest to small check to offset the drought. So there's not many commodity or not many agricultural products out there that I'm aware of that couldn't have access to some level of government funding. Some of it's really good and helpful and makes perfect sense. Some of it you're like, why this doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the majority of corn production goes into um, producing fuel, if I'm not mistaken. And then the majority, the rest of that, corn and soy, like an alfalfa, most of that, while there is some in our consumable foods as humans, a lot of that is animal feed. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the assumption, like we're feeding, we're growing food to feed the animals and this is how we're feeding them. And so it's messy. It's not always like you're not growing soy for humans to like no dump soybeans on their salad so now so, um, so, I, oh i was just gonna say so i think out of all of the corn production in the u.s i think like five percent of it is what they would call sweet corn for human consumption right and then 60 percent is animal feed and 40 percent is ethanol something like that okay. it's mm-hmm. basically when you talk commodities you're talking animal and mm-hmm. in, animal feed slash industrial use very very little of it. So it's actually the specialty crops that we get here in California that go to actual food that people actually eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, even that's like, I think, a good breakdown for us. So for you guys raising birds on pasture, are you guys supplementing with feed? How do you guys approach uh, feeding your chickens and, and how they... Right. So we do supplement um, with feed on pasture. Uh, you can't really grow... You, the, the chickens get lots of nutrients, but it's basically and and vitamins and minerals. But that what they get from pasture, think of it as a as a as a side salad. You know, it's very useful. You should eat a lot of it, but you don't live on a side salad alone, right? You need an actual meal. 
And so for us, that is what we supplement. Um, We actually are a no corn, no soy operation out here. And that's, and we kind of got into it because we had a customer who was like my cousin, our customer who turned around and sells it to his customers. His customers are like, we want no corn, no soy chicken that there is science on both sides. I, I don't have a strong enough opinion to know what's right or wrong, but people are worried about soy uh, estrogen like hormone, minimaking hormones going from soy to chicken to humans. That's an issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are worried about GMOs, which I think is a totally valid thing to worry about. And corn and soy are, you know, heavily modified in that route. And the only way to get mm-hmm. away from that is to go certified organic. And even then, now you're supporting a, cop, a crop that probably uh, shouldn't be grown. So I skipped ahead to my answer right there. The real reason that I have taken us no corn, no soy here on Big Bluff Ranch is because I see valid points on the corn soy health issue. I'm not enough a nutritionist or a scientist to speak intelligently to that. So I'm kind of like, I don't know. But what I am feel relatively confident about talking about is as a kind of a ecologist or a range management or a land steward. And I know that California is in a drought. It's not really going to get all that much better anytime soon on either a macro or micro level. Corn likes lots of summer water. So why are we taking our limited amount of water and dropping it into a water thirsty crop in the middle of summer? There's other better uses for that water. So, Mm -hmm. and then soy, um, soy can't be grown in California. Our climate is too dry that I'm not exactly sure, but right when soy gets about to harvest, it needs relatively high humidity. Otherwise some, the, it, um, the husk opens up and drops the pod or pea out. And so we just can't grow soy in California. And so why would I want to encourage a system that trucks in soy from the Midwest or China? Right. It, it's not it's not ecologically appropriate to where we are. Mm -hmm. And so one, so that's why we don't do no corn, no soy, because those are not really good California crops. What we do use, and I, I'm, we're still dialing this in. It's only been like two years. So, you know, in another 10 years, all of this totally figured out. I'm sure of it. Um, so the grains that we use, we're, we're bouncing back and forth between Milo um, or wheat. Wheat is a, a crop. California actually was like one of the largest world producers of wheat in the late 1800s. Our climate is perfect for growing wheat. Um, so it's a very biologic or ecologically appropriate grain for California. When you plant it in the fall, you get winter rains, it grows up, you harvest it in the early summer and boom, you're done. And then you can, then, uh, this is where it gets all sorts of fun stuff into farming because then you can get into like cover cropping or um, chain cropping. So you can pull your wheat harvest off and then you can go into a summer summer cover crop of um, actually Milo. Milo is uh, also a summer crop. It is a very distant cousin to corn, but it's not super water needy so you can pull your wheat off you can go into a summer crop of milo you can go into a summer cover crop of milo with uh, sunflowers and bell beans and all this sort of stuff and then you know uh, 
just gets so exciting. So what would be the best way to raise chickens is to have twice to three times the acreage you need for just the chickens alone. So this year on acre one, we grow chickens. On acre two, we grow grain. Acre three is probably a, a kind of a fallow year or we'll grow, we'll rotate cows across or something like that. Boom. Okay. So then year two, so then we just shift those crops down. So that means acre two would have chickens in year two. Acre three would have the grains and then acre one would go back to kind of a fallow year where you just run some cows on it, right? And so if you're actually growing the chickens on the ground where the grain came from, that is like the ultimate level of regenerative chicken. And no one's doing that. It's it's something that we could grow into by choosing to grow California, to supplement with California appropriate grains. We're not there yet. It's definitely years down the road, but that's kind of the vision where we take our acreage and we grow the grain that feeds the animals on the acre and we rotate it with our cows and that it's all here. Um, which is just gets me totally geeked out and excited. It's no, no one does that. It so, would be amazing like, if we can pull it off. Why doesn't anyone do that? Because first of all, I really like that you said, you know, chickens need supplementation. Paul said the same thing. He's like, you can't raise chickens on just grass alone. That's a common misconception. You need some kind of legume or so, like something else in there. And, and they're omnivores, so they eat like other bugs and things like that. So they're not just vegetarian. But um, you think of pasture-raised chicken, you think of chickens out in grasses. Why aren't people raising chickens on fields of grain like you're saying? Like, what's the obstacle there? The reason why okay well so that. i should say that those grain those fields of grain would need to be harvested and stored in silo and converted into you know some sort of feed um oh so they couldn't just forage because it, it'd be too tall for the chickens it would be too tall they would waste a lot <laughs> They'd be of it. in there <laughs> right yeah, and then you know like, like so milo is. is you know like a five foot tall plant so all of the seed heads are here five five feet up right you know the chickens <laughs> they're aren't too really short gonna, yeah. they're too short um and then the other thing is that you would not be able to grow the perfect, it doesn't even need to be perfect. You couldn't even really grow an approximately correct mix of uh, protein to energy, you know, the oh. steak, the steak and the potatoes. Like you couldn't get that in the field to the right level. Um, okay. And that also you to be raising, it's kind of a level of commercialism on this sort of thing that if you want to have a hobby or a small scale situation, you can do all this. There are people doing it self, self, um, self feeding grain. It's totally doable, but that you can't really scale that up to a level that it just, it doesn't, the systems don't quite, the biological systems don't quite mesh where you could do it on a commercial scale. And so one of the choices we've kind of made is that we want to, it's, it's a really dumb place to choose to go to. We want to be that regional producer. We want to be too, too big to be small and too small to be big. It's, we're stuck right there. And so we couldn't grow enough chickens on that sort of system. It just, it doesn't really work. So you need to harvest the grain, store the grains, mix it into a, a correct ration and then supplement it back to them. Um, that's just kind of the way it, it would need to work. That makes sense. So I want to transition to, because in our phone call, you 
get, and obviously you've mentioned it today too, you get really excited about like proximity-based growing. Like what food makes sense for the land that you currently live on or the climate you live in. So we're in Ohio, um, Midwest, totally different growing conditions than you experience in California. And you know, it makes sense for you guys if you live on land that it could be how home to sheep and lamb, then Californians should eat a bunch of sheep and lamb because that would make sense. It would be, say we took the food system, food industry out and we'd have to forage for our own food. That's kind of what would probably be there, right? So w- tell us kind of a little bit what you're learning about proximity-based diets and how we can embrace a food that would be more appropriate to our land had we not, you know, commercialized it in, in the agricultural sense. Cool. I get, yeah. I'll, so this, this gets me excited. Um, a lot of this gets me excited. Um, so just to, to kind of like, you, you know, okay, you're sitting at home, you're listening to this, you know, hopefully I'm interesting. Now, Picture yourself going into your grocery store and you're going into your meat case. I already talked about this a little bit. What do you see when you look at that meat case? You're going to see a lot of beef, a lot of chicken, some pork, and then maybe some other random, you know, pork and lamb or uh, lamb and goat or lamb, probably not goat way at the end. Um, Now, anyone who just pictured that now open up your the mentally open up the door of that grocery store. You're walking, you're pushing your cart back out to the car. You know, every one of you who just pictured that is going to have a different environment that you're looking at. So if the environment you're living in is not the exact same, why are all of those meat cases you're buying meat from the exact same? Um, well, and that, so the reason they're the exact same is commodity prices, you know, USDA farm bill processing and all the sort of stuff we sort of touched on. So, but what I would spin that around and say, okay, well, they shouldn't be the same. What they should do is they should be reflecting the environment that you live in. Um, so it's kind of the whole eat local idea, really eat like you live here that, for us in California, we live in a, and it's more specifically here on Big Bluff Ranch, we are a Mediterranean climate. That means we are cool and wet in the winter and hot and dry in the summer. We have a big forage production spike in the spring. We're okayish in the summer and we tail off to not very good in the fall and the winter's kind of, you know, ho hum. Um, so what that means is we should be trying to grow animals that fit that system. Um, and it's not beef <laughs> that California. So you guys in the Midwest, right? You had bison, you had buffalo, you have, you have this thing called summer rain. I, I really, I struggle with the concept of summer rain. Like you don't irrigate. I don't, I don't understand that. So you guys actually have the ability to finish animals um, through the summer where we don't. So for you, it would make more sense to have a lot of beef in your meat case out here. We don't have that option. Um, if you look at the physiological demands of goat and sheep, they, they ramp up really high right before, um, they give birth and then it kind of peaks a little bit for, uh, early lactation. And then as those uh, lambs and kids start to eat themselves, the demand on the ewe and doe drops as the production, 
the feed value of our landscape drops. You wean them in the fall, they have a couple months off, uh, what they would call open or dry, and then you breed them. And then early pregnancy starts as our, our feed starts to take off the next spring. So the, the physiological demands of small ruminants here in California perfectly matches our environment, the way our feed grows. So that's one amazing thing. The other amazing thing is that, um, you know, cows weigh 1,000, 1,500 pounds, like, you know, 2,000 pounds, depends on your genetics. We, our ranch is, you know, flat or it's, it's vertical, you know. So out of our 4,000 acres, only about 2,200 acres of it is actually flat enough to grow cows on. So that leaves 1,800 acres. 1,800 acres um, for uh, hillside for goats and sheep. And that's just the flat acres that you look at on the map. When you actually are on the ground, those acres are actually stood up and down, right? There's actually hills here. So the ranch, if you account for all the hillsides, it's, you know, probably five or 6,000 acres um, of actual stuff you can rose animals on. So that's why I kind of get excited. So the animals fit the landscape. The animals fit our growing season. The animals also fit what our landscape wants. That California, you know, we've been burning quite a bit the last few years. And part of the reason we've been burning is we haven't been uh, managing our fuel loads, which is brush, which is what goats and sheep like to eat. So had Smokey the Bear not stopped all fires and had the BLM stopped all range grazing, we could have turned all of that fuel load, we could have turned it into goat and lamb and we could have eaten it, right? Mm -hmm. And so on top of having a protein reducing our fuel load, we would have also opened up all of these lands. We would have had more, to get back to my solar energy comment, we would have had less brush. We would have had more sunlight getting down to the dirt area where we could have grown more grass to capture more sunlight, to turn it into more grass, to turn it into more animals, to turn it into more healthy food, which is amazing synergistic circle. And also because I mentioned that California is in a drought, it's not getting any better that we don't, you absolutely care about the total amount of rainfall, but what's more important to track is what you would call your effective rainfall. So Say we get 10 inches of rain, so we can do the math easy. In a poorly managed landscape, nine inches of that's going to run off. It's going to hit the ground. It's going to have no way of getting in the ground. It's just going to shoot right off. It's going to hit the river. It's going to hit the, the delta and go out to the ocean. Now, there's definitely some benefits. We don't want to like dry up the river, obviously, but we'd be way better off having managed that landscape to have lots of grass, lots of roots going down into the soil, lots of soil organic matter, basically a sponge. And so when that raindrop hits, those 10 inches hit, rather than having nine of them shoot off down to the river, let's capture, I don't know, pick a number, five inches of it, six inches of it, right? All of a sudden... Our, our rainfall, our effective rainfall went from one inch under poor management to five, four, five, six inches under good management. Each inch of water per acre that you store is something like 25,000 gallons of water. It grows an additional two tons of feed. Like effective rainfall is hugely important. And the way you get effective rainfall is to get healthy landscapes. The, health, the way you get healthy landscapes is to run animals 
or is to have green lat <laughs> green leaves on it and roots on it and generally speaking in rangeland the way you get that is with well-managed animals and you get well-managed animals that's when you get animals that are good to eat they're healthy for you they're taste amazing I don't know. You got me all excited. That's this, it's this, it's just all cool. One little part of the story, and it just circles around and around and around, and it all gets better. The proximity shopping and and where you are, like what kind of meat should be. Near, I love that, and it kind of happens a little bit with seafood, if I'm if I'm right. I mean, in, in some areas, right? Because like if you go to Boston, you're gonna have cheaper access to shellfish. Mm-hmm. You know, things like lobster and you know, oysters, that sort of stuff. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, ocean is ocean, right? There's not really... Can't mimic the ocean in the middle of dry land. So. Or at least we haven't figured out how to, you know, raise a bunch of lobsters the way the ocean has just yet. And, you know, I'm guessing that we won't. Yeah. But anyways, it totally makes sense, right? There, there's, there's examples of this happening that we haven't tried to change, or at least we haven't been successful in changing. And it totally makes sense. I love it. I think it's outstanding. I do right. wonder, like, I, I know Cincinnati specifically was, like, Porkopolis nicknamed. I don't know if that's a result of industrial ag producing pork here and just that's kind of what whoever settled here, that was their desired cuisine. I don't know. Or if it was, like, pigs just happened to be raised here. Great. Mm. I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. So there's probably, like, a lot of layers you'd have to peel back unless you are a farmer or rancher like yourself, like for us, the consumers to figure out, okay, what might be an appropriate um, source of animal protein for me living in Cincinnati, Ohio? Well, I know like the white-tailed deer that Joey hunts is appropriate because we're hunters and that's what's here. Um, there's probably other things, like honestly, squirrels, rabbits, those, those are probably, those small game are here too. Like we have forests all around us. So it's an interesting concept I want to chew on a little bit. I'd love to do some like background research into what our land might have looked like before we grew all that corn and soy in those big open fields. Um, I would like to hear if there's any like, I, like I said before we hopped on, what are some of the things that you wish, if you could talk directly to your consumer from a rancher's perspective, one or two quick things that you're like, I wish this would this message would be conveyed to you. Um, what are something that you want the con- end consumer to know about the poultry production system? Uh, poultry production. Okay. Well, my first answer was like uh, I, I covered it already that you vote with your food dollars and that they are actually extremely meaningful. It feels insignificant to you. But it is absolutely the the thing that will change industries. So vote with your dollars as best you can. And don't worry about being perfect. Just be as good as you can. Take the next step as often as you can. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. that to me. You know, I'm a producer, so I, I have a hard time just putting myself purely into a, commer- a consumer's shoes. But that feels very powerful to me that even as a producer, sometimes I'm like, these industries are monolithic. They're gigantic. They will never change. I have no hope of doing anything, but that's really not the case. You just keep moving forward in the direction that you want things to go. And hopefully, especially if they make sense, everyone kind of follows along. Um, Mm -hmm. 
as far as poultry in general, um, or in specifically poultry, that think it's just important well okay this here, here's a way i could say this that and i don't know if this is the case but here let me just ask you a question we'll do this live i've never actually done this mm-hmm. do you think there's such a thing as a better chicken if you go to the grocery store and you see one chicken for four dollars a pound do you expect that there is a chicken that could be ten dollars a pound do you think that that actually is that ten dollar a pound chicken actually better i think my brain immediately goes to I th- so better the definition of better could be the humanely like how humanely that animal is treated, the the impact that animal had on its environment and what you know it, what impact on environment we took to raise that animal, and finally you know and this is how I think because I'm a chef how does it taste like is that is this animal going to be more or less flavorful and I can say yes I think that there there is a there, there can be a difference and there can be something more valuable. And I've seen this in, um, f- from the processing perspective, right? I've had, uh, so I process all my own deer when I, when I take them and I harvest them. And I have had venison that someone else has har- that ha- processed. And I'm like, wow, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and I'm, th- I'm happy that you've, you've attempted and you've gone for this, but you know, this backstrap that you've brought to me the quality of it not only in flavor because of the way you've trimmed the fat or the silver skin or whatever else and sometimes that comes down to cooking as well but this is not as good as it could have been Um, additionally the way you harvest an animal the way it's the way it's taken right if you are a let's say you're a terrible shot and there's a lot of science that's gone into you know if you if you have to you know if you're taking an animal not to get too gruesome but they don't always, they're not dying like immediately. It's not like X's on the eyes, they fall down with a rose. It's hunting is not like that. And, you know, harvesting animals. I've, you know, if you've raised or slaughtered chickens before, it's also not like that. But that being said, the way you harvest an animal, the way that you take it um, has a way of impacting in some way of, with hormones and pheromones, things that they've, that when an animal is, is in that kind of like fight or flight mode, there's, Again, I'm not a scientist either, but I believe there can be ways that that affects uh, the the meat, at least in, uh, from a venison perspective. Additionally, are you aging the meat? So I've I've taken venison, and if you take a really big buck and it's older, like let's say it's a five six year buck, you know, are you are you harvesting it, skinning it, deboning it, and then running it through a grinder, putting it in your freezer? It's probably going to taste really gamey. It's an older animal. It's not as young. It's not as tender. Hey, are you gonna are you gonna age this meat a little bit? You know, you know, pull out some of that excess moisture. Th- that oftentimes can have a major impact on the food that you're eating. Anyways, all that to be said, I do also believe what they're eating can can change the way an animal tastes. I've had uh, moose from the from the bogs of Newfoundland that you know, they 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 regulate the kind of food you can bring into their country like they don't let you bring seeds like they, they, they check your bags or like you cannot bring seeds or things into our country or into our state right if you're crossing the you know crossing from uh where did we go in from new brunswick or wherever we were and um you know those those moose are eating you know blueberries and and you know shrubs and things that they find around out and that's what they're eating and moose taste different than deer why would it taste different than deer why would moose taste so different than 
than cow. Well, they're different animals, but it's like, man, it's, you know, it's crazy what can happen when, when an animal has a different diet. Anyways, that's my thought. I talked way too long. Um, what was your thoughts? I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't know if your question was like, is there is there a possibility for a better chicken that doesn't exist on the market? But if your question is looking at my two options, I tend, I buy the chicken that I know what, well, if the processing is key, air chilled to me just is better. And just the limited amount of knowledge I have around chicken processing. And then um, organic pasture raised, if I can get it. Uh, we also have a chicken source from our local farm through our herd share program where they're for sure processing on farm. And we have a couple other local chicken producers that I know is just better chicken than the commodity chicken I can find in the grocery store. Yeah. So I guess my, the thing I was trying to convey is that my sense is that people don't believe that there is such a thing as a better chicken, that they are so used that to chicken is cheap. Chicken is bland. Chicken is chicken that there there's no point that any, any better chicken is just a marketing mumbo jumbo. Mm. And that if you, you know, if, if there was a message I would like to give out to your listeners as far as pasture poultry or poultry in general is that there is a better chicken. You're probably going to pay more for it, but it is actually better. You can get a better chicken if you go to organic. That's a little bit better. Not amazing, but it's definitely better. If you can go to air chilled, like you mentioned, that's a significant step better. That's like it's not quite one to one, but that's like dry aging your beef mm-hmm. rather than chilling the carcasses in a chlorinated bath with a lot of other chickens at once. They're actually hung inside a refrigerator and they actually lose a little bit of moisture instead of soaking up this chlorinated water, which is a whole different story. I'm just going to leave it there. We'll move on. People are like, chlorinated water, what? Um, uh, pasture raised is when you really start getting into the absolute, you know, cream of the crop that the birds are raised anyone who's raising pasture poultry is going to be by default thinking about all the stuff i've been talking about you know grasses and recovery periods and multi-species and you know biologically appropriate stuff you can't really raise a chicken on pasture without thinking about that stuff because you're in the environment like you can't ignore it it's gonna come it's gonna rain on you you're gonna have this weird grass grow up. Like you gotta know all this stuff. If you put them in a barn, it's relatively easy to ignore that stuff. Raising raising animals is always complicated, but I like to think that it is easier to raise them in a barn. Um, so that would be kind of my thing: is that there is a there is a better chicken, and that if you value what that better chicken represents, that remember your food volatiles matter as often as you can feel comfortably to signal to the market that you value that thing, buy it. And that the more you buy it, the cheaper it's going to become, the more options you're going to have. And just hopefully pasture poultry becomes grass fed beef in the next 15 or 20 years. It's just going to be a, it's going to be a meat case standard. So you can have that whole gamut from your farmer's market pasture poultry to your regional pasture poultry to your national pasture poultry. That's going to be a pretty amazing thing when we get there. Totally. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience before we wrap up here? I feel like I've enjoyed this conversation so much, but any, any final mentions? 
Uh, I've, I, uh, I would like to say thank you for having me on. I had a fun time chatting. Um, yeah, it's just all this stuff is just fascinating that the, you know, the, the agriculture is people's most direct, direct link to impact in the environment. You know, I don't know that people really necessarily link that so strongly in their minds that what they eat comes from the ground even if it's in a box at some point it came from the ground and that as i've kind of mentioned a couple times that by choosing what you buy what sort of food you buy actually trickles out pretty directly to how the landscape the environment is managed and Mm. that even if you think that hey i'm just living in the city i'm just you know eating my food i don't have anything to do with that that that's actually not true you're voting all the time and that you can you can choose the future. It's so cool. I don't know. I just I get excited about it. Um, so, uh, but as far as other stuff, yeah, you mentioned just very briefly at the beginning. We are um, we're we're direct to consumers right now. We ship chicken. Um, most we'll ship it anywhere, but West Coast is the um, the most reasonable shipping costs. We are just starting up our meat subscription box. So you'll be getting, you can sign up and get a monthly chicken box from us here pretty quick. And um, all of that fun stuff could be found at bigbluffranch.com. And my email's up there, phone number's there. I like talking about this stuff. Um, So if anyone wants further clarifications or wants me to talk to them for another two hours about all this (laughs) agricultural stuff, uh, just track me down and I will give you your own very own personalized podcast. I actually can verify that because I like to have a phone call with our guests before we get on the podcast, obviously. And I I very much enjoyed the conversation we had. Um, I think I remember you going down a few rabbit holes and you're like, well, this is basically the podcast. And it's just you're a wealth of knowledge, truthfully. And you can really tell your passion um, is clear and it comes through in your food. And I think that's incredible. Um, do you guys, are you guys on social media? Do you guys have social media channels we can point people to? Yeah, we, we are on most of the social medias, uh, Facebook and Instagram, but I gotta say, I'm not, I I would be the social media guy and I'm not very active at it. It's a weird, slightly weird thing, but if you really want to find me on a social media, LinkedIn is my addiction. Find me Tyler Dolly on LinkedIn. I don't know. There's just something we'll about LinkedIn that, that I love. Notes. Joey's kind of the same way, to be honest. Yeah, I'm better at LinkedIn than I am anything else. So yeah. we'll link your LinkedIn in the uh, show notes, and then I and then Big Bluff Ranch as well on Instagram. Um, yeah, this has been fantastic, Joey. Any final questions that you have? I uh, I just took notes here of man the effect that agriculture can have on our environment, and th- there's just there's just not enough people talk. The, the amount of environment talk that happens mm-hmm. and the amount of that talk that is aimed at how agriculture is having a negative effect. Right. Totally. And I feel like, man, no one ever talks about how if something has a negative effect, I think like this is just a logical way to look at a situation. If something is very capable of having a very negative inf- um, impact on something, it likely also has that same amount of power to have a positive impact on something. That, that's only just, that just only makes sense. Mm-hmm. And there's probably some scenarios people could find out there where it's like, you're totally wrong. But the examples I'm thinking of is, man, parents with kids, right? 
if you're parenting your kids, the impact you can have on them in their future is gigantic. You negative or positive. Um, the the working out the positive negative impacts that can have on someone, whether you do it or not, right? The it's just such a fascinating thought and. I feel like I've always kind of known it. And man, Tyler, I feel like you articulated that super well. And I'm, I'm walking away even from this talk, right? I, I learned so much from having a podcast. And I'm definitely walking away from this conversation having learned a tremendous amount. I'm super thankful you came on and super thankful for what you do. You know, quite frankly, thank you for being that regional farmer that's in between the big and the small, right? And uh, getting after it and, and, and making stuff happen because it's, 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 with, it's without people like you that, man, if, if, if there aren't anyone out there that are having this positive impact on our environment, you know, where would we be today? Right. And, uh, yeah, super thankful for that. So Tyler, thank you so much for, for, for coming on. We're definitely going to you know link your, your LinkedIn, your, your website and, and, and everything else in the show notes. Definitely recommend people go out there. And you said this, this, uh, chicken boxes is, is nationwide shipping. We can ship nationwide. It's, um, it's a little pricey once it gets past the Rockies, but we definitely can ship anywhere. Roger uh, that. And that's that's available for today. So so people listening this could go online and get this shipping today. Uh yeah. 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 I right, mean right this on. is we, we're gonna go live with it in January of two thousand twenty three. So depending on when this airs, um, it's either just about to go live or will have just gone live. Yeah. We're you know, we're two weeks away from there, so Anyways, go awesome. bigbluff.com, get yourself some chicken. Love to hear it. Right. Yeah, awesome. And I would just say real, really, really quick, this will be a quick rabbit hole, that this um, positive agriculture stuff I've talked about, if anyone wants to go down the rabbit hole of the internet, the umbrella term is regenerative agriculture. That's what most people these days are calling it. So you want to learn mm. more about it, regenerative agriculture would be kind of your, your key word to losing hours to the internet. <laughs> totally there's so many good documentaries there's so many good food producers um, podcast episodes like that's kind of the stuff I always consume that regenerative agriculture keyword tells me right away that I I probably align with how they're thinking so I love that love thank it. you Tyler thanks so much for coming on man and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking here in the future yeah right, enjoy the rest it. of your day I will yep thanks Bye. a lot guys and with that Tyler has left the virtual chat. Holy smokes. Th that guy is probably the smartest farmer. <laughs> right? Every farmer I talk to, every food producer, I'm like, you are brilliant. The I don't know where we get this conception of like uh, just a country folk farm. I don't know. Like to me, I'm like, why are you guys sleeping on the intense knowledge of your food producers? Like let's normalize speaking directly to the people raising food instead of listening to ridiculous politicians who have no idea what they're talking about, about oh climate gosh. change. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. Tyler's the bomb. He's awesome. Um, I just, again, feel like Anytime I can sit across the table from someone who's in the field, in the industry, it helps me as a consumer understand my buying power and helps me make better decisions in the grocery store. So at the end of the day, like, does any of that conversation matter? I mean, it to me, it's like, well, does it change our habits? Does it inform our decision making? Does it impact how we can feed our families? 
And I can't sit through a conversation like that and not have some sort of inkling to mm-hmm. pay attention. I mean, I already feel like I buy the best chicken I can at the mm-hmm. grocery store. And um, I think we could probably do a better job of supporting our local chicken um, producers. But again, like the the chicken producer providing under the Kroger organic label might mm-hmm. be local. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not to say that like mm-hmm. that's not near chicken i just have to do some background research. i love how he laid out some almost like a tier list of good better best scenario for chicken i know we've talked about this before and it was really validating and it totally aligned i love that like he started talking i thought about. oh dear like is he gonna just completely you know no. rip up things we've talked about in the past and yeah. he's talking about it. man organic's good you know first and foremost 100 percent agree with him and i talked about it way too much about how i align with there being better chicken but i I believe there can be better everything like i think there's a top tier of all those things and a lot of it has to do with diet of the animal in my opinion i think their treatment has a lot to do with it what i was talking about when you take an animal how it's killed Mm -hmm. how it's harvested that's a there's a there's a big factor there and then even after that how it's processed right how it's processed is a big deal and um, anyways, lo- uh, how love it's that. processed is a big deal. And Huge I actually deal. No one talks about it. Huge I'm, deal. I'm thankful for like this is an example where I'm thankful for food packaging because only recently did our Kroger start selling air chilled chickens. And so then I saw that label mm-hmm. and I was like, what the heck is air chilled? And then I did some research and like what Tyler said, you can either because you have to cool the chicken. Okay, so we kill the chicken, then we plunge it to under in scalding water to get the feathers off. You have to take out some of the internal organs, but you have to cool the chicken really quickly so that bacterial growth does not start and doesn't like get deep into the tissues. So you can either dunk a bunch of chickens into a big bath with of chlorinated water as he pointed out or you can stick them in a giant refrigerator with really cold air and they're air chilled Mm. and i would have never known the difference in that but i started buying air chilled chicken and it's less waterlogged has a better flavor Mm. like the skin preservation i just feel like is better Mm. because it's not been like soaking Mm. in this like big mess of other chicken baths so it's like just even right there a silly little little label that you could argue is a marketing thing well not really it's more just informing the customer and then i had to go back it's both we talked about that with you know know, with was it colona supernatural no we talked about it with uh sam this idea Sam from the rodell institute we talked about it just it's marketing and it's informative it's both sure sure and it's it's there's there's almost like we have to be aware of marketing and we but we also can't be scared of it yeah, it's like, totally. man, USDA organic label. Guess what? That tells us something. It's also marketing. And it's also federally regulated. regulated. Yeah, he was like, you could go to prison. He's like, it's game it's protected time. by federal law. Anywho. If you I, liked this conversation, if you like Tyler, I like Tyler. I really He's like, like Tyler. a just savage, burly man with a big old beard. And like, I just, I feel like him, I could just hang he out. He looks exactly how he Drink sounds. coffee and like stare off at 4,000 acres of chicken. I just want to do that. You know what I mean? Listen to some country music. I'm in. He's from California. I don't know if he listens to country music. Well, you know what? That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, love Tyler. Hit Tyler up on, on LinkedIn. Tyler Dolly. I'm going to. He's also available Love to by hear that. email. Yeah. Uh, look up their website. Get some chicken. Bigbluffranch.com. If you liked hearing from Elizabeth and me, you like this podcast, you can review this podcast both negatively and positively. Either way, right? <laughs> 
Uh, if you liked hearing from Elizabeth and myself, you can do that. You can find us on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. I guess I never thought about saying that, but you could. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm there. I'm in the LinkedIn game. You can find Elizabeth at Liz Hazelmeyer. You can find me at Joey Hazelmeyer. You can find Homegrown at Homegrown underscore education. We've got a website. We sell things on that website. We also give stuff away for free on that website. We, we're on a mission over here at Homegrown just to get you in the game of placing. We, we want people to be voting with their dollars to use some of Tyler's terminology mm -hmm. in the best, most effective way possible for change, but also for your nourishment. With the best information you can possibly That's get. what we're doing over here. So we've got educational resources that are free to help you do that. This like podcast this is free. Yeah. We also have stuff on our website that's free that you can download to learn more, to dig deeper. We, like all businesses, we also have some things that are for sale on that website to help you learn more. Help your kids learn more. To help you nourish your family better. So we've got What's for Dinner. This is a, this is a, a resource that gets you in the game of nourishing your family on a daily, nightly basis and solving the problem of figuring out on a, on a daily basis what's for dinner. Shopping lists, recipes you know you name it. it's 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 getting you into a place where you figure out what's for dinner and hopefully setting you up to figure dinner out on your own right mm -hmm. it's almost like a it's almost like a training mechanism what's for dinner is so hey if you want to get better at making and figuring out and planning out your weekly meals what's for dinner? we got what's for breakfast same concept but for breakfast boom elevate your morning meals we've got curriculum for your kids get on to homegrown education.org you can find those resources and until next time that's a wrap